Florida. My friend told a dad joke. He's the father of six. To the average adult ear, dad jokes are painful. They just aren't very funny. Well, you all laugh, so you all like them. But they consist of silly plays on words and puns, and they're just not all that witty or wise. However, kids think that they're funny, or at least they're entertained by them. Because when your dad tells a bad joke, you think it's funny because he's your dad and he's being silly. But as silly as these jokes are, they reveal something about the relationship of fathers to their children. There is a sweet intimacy between a father and child that is unlike friendship or romantic love. A father-child relationship is one of trust, protection, obedience, admiration, and sometimes playfulness. In Psalm 103, David says that God's care for his people is like a father's compassion for his children. In fact, references to the fatherhood of God begin very early on in the scriptures. If you recall, Israel is referred to as God's son. In Exodus 4, God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Deuteronomy 32 questions the Israelite, is he not your father? Who created you, who made you, and established you? Hosea 11, the Lord speaks and says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Yahweh was Israel's father because he called them into existence and gave them their very identity as God's chosen people. He bestowed identity upon them. And his unconditional calling of this people and giving them an identity had another part to it. He gave them a mission to carry out in the world. The son was to faithfully reflect the father's character into the world. And in so doing, provoke curiosity, attract the other nations to their very unique, godly way of life so that the other nations would be drawn into that and come to know the God that they served. But then what happens? Grumbling in the wilderness. We're so tired of manna. We want a king. All the other nations have a king. Negligence of widows and orphans bit of idol worship here and there. Everybody's doing it. And over and over again, the son sins against the father. Centuries of serial disobedience and failure to reflect the father's good character into the world leads to a failure of mission. So what does the father do in response to remedy the situation? You may have read the passage from Matthew's Gospel that we heard today before and asked, uh, what in the world is all this business about Jesus getting baptized? Surely the sinless one did not need a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Surely the sinless one did not need to repent. Uh, John the Baptist himself is befuddled, so you're not alone. When Jesus comes to him, John says, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me? It would be like waiting for your chiropractor to come into the room, and upon entering, he lies down on the table and asks you for a spinal adjustment. 
John had just been proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. And then the Lord himself comes to John and says, dunk me. And Matthew tells us John responds. He says, then he consented. I imagine John did one of these. Well, okay. And our beloved, unkempt, locust-eating, fire-and-brimstone preacher baptizes the Lord himself. And before the sun can even dry the waters of the Jordan from Jesus' face, the heavens open and a dove descends upon him, a beautiful imagery of new creation. Remember the dove over uh, the land when the flood had ceased. Beautiful imagery of new creation and a voice thunders out from the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, maybe those words sound familiar to you, or if you're, if you're the type that pays close attention to the readings, you will have heard a variation of those words in our reading from Isaiah just a few moments ago. And Isaiah said, This is my faithful servant whom I uphold and whom my soul delights. Sounds pretty similar, right? Well, there's a reason for that. Bible scholars and experts agree that this is drawn directly from that passage in Isaiah. So why is that? Why is, why, is the, why, is, why is Matthew giving us these words from Isaiah? These words in Isaiah are part of what is called one of four servant songs. They're referred to as servant songs. And they were words spoken over Israel about the mission of Israel to be a faithful servant of God, a faithful son to carry out the mission in the world. And so these very words from the very mouth of God are now spoken over God's own true son. God sends his own true son to pick up the mission that had been failed. You know, you've probably all experienced um, driving by or you're familiar with a restaurant in town that's been poorly mismanaged and the business starts to dwindle and the place just has to close its doors. And then you drive by a couple months later and you see a big sign and what does it say? Under new management and there's construction going on and you think to yourself, hey, you know what? I'm going to give them another chance. Maybe the new management will actually carry out the original mission of the business. Well, it's not a perfect metaphor, but there's something like that going on in Jesus' baptism. When God speaks these words over his son, that he is the faithful one, the beloved, in whom his soul delights, in whom he is well pleased, it's kind of like a sign that says, under new management. Because the blessings to the nations project has been assumed by Jesus himself. The blessings to the nations project that had been given to Israel back in Genesis 12 when God told Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. Remember that? And from Abraham comes Israel, all the sons of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And the mission is never fulfilled. So God sends his only son as, a, as new management to take over the mission. And all through the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, in its narrative form, we see this mission unfolding. We heard from Acts 10 today. That Peter began to speak after he has had the revelation that the gospel will go to all people, not just to the Jews. And Peter says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, Jew or Greek, anyone. 
and does what is right is acceptable to him. And we see the pouring out of God's spirit and the mission of the church. And that's what we come to next. Why was Jesus baptized? We haven't answered this question yet. And there's two points. There's probably a dozen points that could be made about why Jesus is baptized. But there's two big ones for us to talk about today. Identity and mission. An issue of identification and an issue of mission. Jesus knows that he doesn't need a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But one reason he gets baptized is to show himself aligned with the mission of God that is unfolding in John's preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he shows himself saying yes in aligning himself with the message that John the Baptist is preaching. It's an issue of mission. And the other issue is of identification. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with the new humanity. All who give themselves to baptism for the purpose of God. So there's an issue of identity and an issue of mission. Now, remember, I said Israel was given an identity in being called out as God's chosen people and being covenanted to God in a covenant. That was their identity. But they were given a mission, too, a mission to reveal God to the world through their way of life. And so God sends his faithful son to renew the mission, to start it anew, to bring it into faithful fulfillment. And he's baptized to show himself aligned with that mission. Now, there's another part of this. Because we who are baptized have to ask, well, what does it mean for me to be baptized? Paul tells us that when we are baptized, we are buried with Christ. We are united with him, buried with him in his death so that we too can be raised to the glory of the Father. The strong language in the New Testament, the, the strong sacramental language, if you will, of how we are united to Jesus himself in baptism is profound. And so what happens to us in baptism is we are given an identity. What is that identity? John in his epistle says, Behold what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. We are given a new identity as the children of God. Paul describes it as being given a spirit of adoption. What beautiful terms. A spirit of adoption, he says to the Christians at Rome, you've been given a spirit of adoption, so when that spirit inside you cries out, Abba, Father, you know that that spirit is bearing witness with his spirit that you are children of God. We've been given an identity in our baptism, a new identity, forgiven, redeemed children of God who cannot be separated from the love of Christ. And Paul tells us, you are co-heirs with Christ, co-inheritors. What did Christ inherit from giving himself faithfully to God's purposes from him? Resurrection. Resurrection glory, eternal life. And Paul tells us that because of your new identity as sons and daughters of God, you too will inherit resurrection glory. That's exciting. But remember, we're co-inheritors of something else. We are co-inheritors of the mission of Jesus. Identity 
and mission. And when we give ourselves to Jesus in the waters of baptism and when we are older and confess that baptismal faith, we say yes, not only to our identity as God's beloved children, but yes to the mission. You see, Israel's downfall was that they wanted to hold on their identity as we are sons of Abraham. They wanted the identity part, but they failed at the mission because they became turned in on themselves, many of them. And so Jesus comes and is baptized, showing himself in alignment with the new purposes of God and invites us to be baptized into him, into the body of Christ, to take on our new identity as his children and to take on his mission in our own lives. What does this look like for you? What does this look like in your life? As we roll into a new year, are you asking the Lord how you are to be a part of his mission this, in this new year? Now, I don't mean to prescribe any specific things because the Holy Spirit will speak to each of us about how he will use our gifts and our resources that he's given us for the purposes of his mission. And I don't want to suggest standing on a soapbox on a street corner like the people by my house do with megaphones shouting about Jesus. But I do want to suggest a general approach to living out the mission. Live in such a way that you provoke questions from others about why you live the way you live. Live in such a way that causes a curiosity about how radical your love and your mercy are towards other people, your willingness to share all that God has given you. Provoke curiosity, and then, as our colleague says, be willing to boldly confess his name, to tell people why you live the way you live, because of Jesus. I read a story recently about a Christian man who had a neighbor who was planning to go on a trip across the country in his car with his family. And the neighbor found out that his car broke down. And so they had to cancel their trip across the country. And this neighbor went to him and said, take my Volvo station wagon. And the guy thought, oh, no, no, no. But as they continued to talk, he realized he was serious. He said, no, take our car across the country. It's fine. I trust you. And they were able to go on their vacation. This provoked curiosity in the neighbor. Why would you trust us with your nice car to go across the country? And a conversation opened up and the man said, You know, I'm a follower of Jesus, and we just believe that our possessions aren't really just ours. They're for the good of the whole world. And so we just wanted to share share our car with you, because it's what Jesus would want us to do. And that neighbor became curious about this man's faith. And a long story short, they continue to have conversations about how this man came to know this Jesus fellow. And this man leads this other man to Christ to become a Christian. But you see, all that he did, he didn't proclaim from a soapbox or scream in people's faces about Jesus. He was a Christian. He did the Christian thing and gave him a possession and said, just take it. Use it for your own good. And it provoked curiosity. What if we lived in such a way in this new year that provoked curiosity from our neighbors in however God is calling us to serve the community around us? Or what if 
Do you know that 82% of people say that they would go to a church if somebody invited them, a friend that they know? 82% say they would go to church if a friend invited them. How is God calling us to live into the mission and the identity of being his children in 2017? One way that perhaps we could start is by each morning coming before the Lord for a few moments and saying, God, I'm available. I'm available today to be used by you. Will you use me in some way? Will you bring somebody who's broken and hurting across my path? Or take me to them? Show me how I can be a servant at the grocery store. Show me how I can be in my everyday life a light in the darkness. That's a good place to start. Friends, I look forward to seeing how God uses each of you in this new year, how God uses us together as a church to be a light to the world, to join the faithful son in the faithful mission of being children of God who carry out his mission in the world. Amen.